Now I'm going to invite you to join me this morning as we continue our journey with Jesus uh, that we've been gone through Luke 19. And as we do, I realize that some of you, as you open your Bibles to Luke 19, this is kind of a hint, you know, open your Bibles to Luke 19. Uh, as, you, as you go there, you might realize that I might be playing a bit of a, of a game of leapfrog with you. Last week, we ended at verse 27 in Luke 19, and this morning, I'm going to ask you to join with me at verse 45. So, you know, you might make that calculation in your, in your mind there. Let's see, we go from 7 to 45. That's leapfrog, it seems. But some of you in your Bibles have little headings in, that explain the, the, the purpose of each of the paragraphs, and, and it'll explain part of the reason why I've made this leap. Because right before verse 28, it reads, the triumphal entry, and many of you identify this and may in fact have in your Bible, Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is actually 10 weeks from now, and, and 10 weeks from now, I will return to that, that passage, and, and 10 weeks from now, April 9th, is Palm Sunday, so sneak preview, Palm Sunday is coming. But for the moment, I'm going to ask you, uh, to, as we go to verse 45, to draw on what you may remember of Palm Sunday in order to set the stage for the action that takes place. Palm Sunday was the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem for the final time, and the final time before the passion that led to the cross. Now, as you may remember that day, his actions uh, begin with a triumphal entry, and then uh, his entry then reveals him as a whole person in, in full dimensions. Uh, he's a gentle king, even as he rides on the back of a donkey. He's a compassionate parent, because as on the brow of the hill looking over Jerusalem, he weeps over the city uh, as he would weep over rebellious children. And, and the picture that we have of Palm Sunday uh, begins with a, a portrait of Jesus as a gentle Jesus. And if we were to picture Jesus, my suspicion is that is the portrait that we really want. Jesus, gentle Jesus. But when we turn to verse 45, we're going to find that there is another dimension to that portrait. For there we find that Jesus is, in fact, the righteous judge. Because having come into Jerusalem, he enters the temple, and when he does so, he comes with a bit of violence, a cleansing, wrathful power. Jesus is certainly a gentle Jesus, but what you have to understand about Jesus is that he is also a man of passion, too. I love the title of Thomas Howard's book in speaking of the strength of Jesus, that it is Christ the tiger. He's a man of passion. And it is this last of the portraits of Palm Sunday that should give every single one of us a, a reason to pause. It's a, it's a picture that's really hard to fit. Gentle Jesus suddenly flexing holy muscle. And, and yet it's one picture that you and I need to really take to heart if we seriously mean to do business with him. So this morning, I, I want you to go to that moment in Luke and, in fact, to the, uh, add to that uh, the account that we have found in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, because the details in the Gospel of Mark add to the picture that we have in Luke, and they go together and create a full three-dimensional portrait. Now, in Luke, the story is fairly similar, uh, uh, simple. You find it there in Luke 19, verse 45. He entered the temple area, we read, and he began driving out those who were selling. 
Now, keep your finger right on that and then turn back to Mark 11, uh, to verse 14 and 15, where we read these words. On reaching the temple area, he began to drive out those who were buying and selling, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. You can see why I want to add the two passages together because Luke simply says he drove them out. It, it, it sounds like, you know, a nice Sunday drive, you know. But, 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 but when we add Mark, uh, you, you get a blow-by-blow blow description of what's happening here. You can almost hear, when reading Mark, you can almost hear the tables crashing. You can almost hear the coins pinning, pinging off the stones. You can almost hear the cages snapping and the flapping of the wings as the doves make their getaway. And, and, and the action here in Mark is really extreme. As extreme as the business Jesus needs to conduct. In fact, Mark adds a little extra to this scene. And there is another episode that only serves to expand the frame of Jesus' mind on that day. Just prior to reaching Jerusalem, on the way to Jerusalem, we read in verse 13, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. Now this morning I want you to help me to do a very difficult thing, and I want you to hold the two pictures that we, that we have together in mind. The picture of the temple and the picture of the fig tree. I want you to, I know it's going to be hard to do, but use your imagination and, and take that scene from the fig tree and take the te- scene of the temple, because I'm going to pull them together. Together they carry an impressive and a lasting image of the powerful passion of Jesus Christ. Because in these two acts, he reveals the things that matter most to him. Now keep in mind, he has entered the final week of his life on earth, and each moment of these days, these final days, have got to count. There's no wasted motions from this point forward. There are no frivolous gestures. There's simply a direct application with with tangible images that are embedded in the heart of a disciple. And these two images are embedded in their hearts, the fig tree and the temple. The one reveals what Jesus expects of you as a disciple. And the other reveals what Jesus expects of us as his family, the fig tree and the temple. So let me deal with these images one at a time, and the first is that of the fig tree. Back to Mark 11. I don't know how many of you are familiar (laughs) with fig trees. They just really aren't native to Vancouver. I I, I remember uh, when we first moved to uh, Vancouver, Jan and I uh, were walking through uh, Overweighty. Do you remember Overweighty, when it was called Overweighty in Ladner? And as we were going through the produce aisle, I, had, I started laughing. And James goes, what's so funny? I said, look at the sign. It said, imported bananas. I, said, and I went to the clerk and I said, I, I don't want anything imported. I want to buy Canadian. <laughs> I go, what do you mean imported bananas? You know, any banana in Canada is going to be imported anyhow. You know, Anyhow, I, I thought I'd just toss that one out. I thought it was funny. <laughs> Meanwhile, my life, wife looked at me and said, you're an idiot. So, um, back to the scene here. Okay. I don't know how many of you are familiar with fig trees. 
but they are all over the Middle East. And some of them grow in groves, but a lot just grow in the wild. And, 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 they, and they grow to a full height of anywhere from 15 to 30 feet, and they do so in just five years. That's all it takes for a fig tree. And it only takes them three years to mature and start producing fruit. And when they do, they are capable of pumping out anywhere from two to three crops a year. Now, if you've ever had a fig, you know just how sweet they are. It's like natural candy. It's full of natural sugar, and it's all sweet, and it's all gooey, and and, and it's just there for the picking, and and, and there for the eating. And I I was actually thinking about adding to the message this morning by bringing, bringing a few bags of of figs with me this morning and then having the ushers pass them out for you to eat as I speak. But then I thought of the mess that we would have here. I, I mean, just picture a, a box of pretty chocolates sitting in the sun for a while and then being passed around what the pews would look like after we would be finished. And so I, I thought to myself, um, no figs for you. Okay, so this morning. But figs in the Gospel of Mark. Sweet and gooey, and best of all, they are good for you. Because as fruit, they are packed with all of the right ingredients, vitamins that you need. And so you can have them for breakfast, guilt-free. And the best part is, best part, they're free. Now, I, 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 I say all of this to get the idea of what's going on here in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is going out for breakfast. And he sees a fig tree. And oh yeah, oh let me have one more thing. It is in leaf. Now picture that. A fig tree, 15 to 30 feet high with leaves. And the leaves, each of them are about 4 to 8 inches across. And in the life cycle of a fig tree, the, the, the leaves never do come out before the fruit. They always come out after the fruit. The fruit comes first, and then the leaves pop out. Are you with me? Are you following me? Because we are, we are really close to the lesson that is in this image. When Jesus sees the tree, it is almost like a billboard with all its leaves waving in the wind. It's full of promise. It is a living advertisement. Breakfast, open for business. Only... The promise was a lie. Jesus comes to the tree, and he looks around, and he he finds nothing. You can just picture lifting the leaves. The leaves are here. There must be fruit, you know. And and there is absolutely nothing. It is just leaves for show. He digs through the branches. He lifts the leaves. Nothing. And when Jesus speaks... He makes an honest tree out of that fig tree. He wasn't angry because he was left hungry. He had already gone for 40 days without food. He proved that he could live with a bit of hunger, but he was here just stating a fact. The tree was barren. And whatever life it had advertised was false advertising. It was a fake. Have you got that picture in your mind? Good, because now I'm going to add a second picture. 
The scene then shifts to the temple, where, as we read earlier, Jesus entered the temple area, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches and those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And again, this is a very powerful scene. Already there were huge Passover crowds flowing into the great court of the Gentiles. It was a walled, marble-paved field just south of the temple. And and, and you have to really call it a field because that's what it was. Its length was about three football fields and Canadian football fields. So they were over 300 yards. And it was 250 yards wide. And you can imagine this now, jammed with people. And everyone there ostensibly to meet God because that was where they were to to go in order to worship. But in fact, it was anything but a religious experience. You see, in Exodus chapter 30, there was a command. Exodus 30, verses 13 through 16, that every male worshiper over the age of 20 was to bring an offering worth a half a shekel when he came to worship. Fine except that the temple guardians at that time had added a law that said that the offering that was to be brought by every male worshiper couldn't be made in the currency of the day. It had to be made in temple money because any other currency was considered to be unclean. Unclean because it had idolatrous images on it, pictures of Caesar or somebody else. And so it, it had to be, before they could go in, they had to exchange their, their, their money, their half a shekel, for what was called a Tyrian coin, a, a special minted temple coin. And they charged an exchange rate for that. An exorbitant exchange rate for that. And so when they came in, it was extortion on a grand scale set by the chief priests and the scribes. And added to that, there was livestock already in that courtyard there for sale, for sacrifice. Josephus, a a Hebrew historian, wrote that in A.D. 65, which was very close to this time, within 30 years of this time, that 255,600 lambs were offered during the Passover. Can you imagine having that many animals within the courtyard? <laughs> and it wasn't just the animals. It, 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 it was also the doves and, the, and others. And so suddenly you see this kind of miasma in this courtyard of people and money and animals and traffic, all in a place that was actually built for one other purpose— to meet in worship before God. And once again, I have to think to myself, the word false advertising comes to mind. And once again, Jesus rolls up his sleeves and he decides to clear the deck, even as he had done so with the fig tree, because he means business. He means business in your life. He He means business in our fellowship. And when it comes to your life, please know that he does already have a business plan. Return back with me to the fig tree. In the Gospel of Mark, it reads that the disciples then saw the the fig tree the next morning and it was withered from the root. 
And Peter remembered this, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus turned to him and said, have faith in God. And then he goes on to deliver a lesson on faith and prayer and forgiveness, all places where God, in fact, does go to work in our lives. Have faith in God. The fig tree is only an object lesson for a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because, you see, you and I were intended, that's his business plan, we were intended to grow according to the Spirit of God. In Galatians chapter 5, the distinctive mark of one who belongs to God is that they bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus made it very plain to his disciples, by your fruits shall the world know you. By their fruits. By your fruits, not your leaves. Shall you be known. How many people speak of having a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it is as thin as leaves blowing in the wind. It's an appearance of righteousness, but lift them up and there's no fruit to be found. And as a heavenly father, God's greatest desire is that his children grow up into maturity step by step, day by day as a venture of faith, have faith in God, a faith cultivated by prayer and forgiveness, becoming the man or the woman that he has meant you to be from the very beginning of creation. And he will not settle for anything less. Being changed closer to him daily because... He loves you. In the book, The Ascent of a Leader, Bruce McNichol and Bill Thrall tell of a woman who had a, has a dream <clears throat> where she wanders into a shop at the mall and finds Jesus standing behind the counter. And Jesus says to her, you can have anything your heart desires. Astounded but pleased, she goes ahead and asks for peace, joy, happiness, wisdom, and the freedom from fear. And then she adds... Not just for me, but for the whole earth. Sounds like beauty pageant, doesn't it? Peace on earth. And Jesus smiled when he looked at her and he said, I think you misunderstand me. We don't sell fruits, only seeds. You grow the fruit. We grow that fruit and we do it together by active reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God. So lesson number one out of this is that you were intended to grow. Ask yourself the question, how are you doing? Go beyond the advertisement of your testimony. Look at the, at the growth of your heart and your life and your character. Lesson number two, we were intended to worship. And that's the lesson that comes out of the temple. My house is to be called a house of prayer. That's what we read. A place where we meet God and we do it together. The call for the temple to be the house of prayer for all nations was in fact not just something Jesus came up with. It was a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7 where God had made it clear to his people what he intended of his temple, that it would be a place but even more, a place for a people 
who would, when gathered together, open the doors to heaven. Now, I don't pretend to know all the reasons why people come to church. I just know that the one reason Jesus has in mind that motivated him in this day was that the that worship would occur. In the Gospel of John, he says that God is engaged in a search for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Every week as I prepare for worship, there is a definition given by William Temple that helps me keep a focus. William Temple wrote, he said, I I come here to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, and to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. That's what we do together. And when we come together, what we say and do can either bring God alive in our fellowship, or can in fact, get drowned out by distraction. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to prompt one another to praise, but only if we allow Christ to rule in our hearts and in our relationships. Only when we put Christ between us, sweeping away all other distractions, allowing him to clear the courtyard do we find the distractions gone and we can find each other and in finding each other, find God? I remember one Sunday while we lived in Wheaton, I was listening to Kent Hughes at the, the pastor of the college church and he came to the end of a sermon and his words hit me at heart so much so I, I, I actually wrote them down. I've got a record of them. He said, it is so easy for our faces to look so worshipful and ecclesiastic and yet at at heart, to be as disrupted and as distracted as if we were in the marketplace. So where have you been this morning as we have been in this house of prayer, he asked. At the office? (laughs) At the movies? Watching a game on a mental TV? Writing a term paper? If so, repent, for there is more involved than you know going on in your soul. There is the holiness of God at stake and the spiritual health of treasured eternal souls that surround you. So clean it up. Let Jesus help you clean it up so that together not only you can grow in him, but that we can get about the business of Jesus. And do it now. Asking yourself the question, what has been happening to you? Have you been showing lots of leaves, but such little fruit? It may be time for a pruning to occur. That the Spirit of God might find greater freedom in your life to restore you and to grow you and add to all the joy of his presence. It's up to you to decide and to yield, and to give yourself to a very firm, stern, but gentle Jesus who really does love you.